Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you feel like your allergies are having a comeback tour and you want relief quickly, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny, and itchy nose and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I have had Camila Cabello's Havana stuck in my head. Well, in that case, Charlie, welcome to the club. <laughs> this is the Billboard charting crossover single from former Fifth Harmony star Camila Cabello. By the end of today, what we're going to see is that Camilla breaks free of both the constraints of genre as well as biased gender expectations on this awesome single. Excellent. Yeah, let's get into it. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. All right, so here's how we're going to do it. On the top half of the show, I want to break down how she pulls on the history of Atlanta hip-hop and Afro-Cuban jazz to craft this song. And in the second half, I'll be joined by Hannah Steinkopf-Frank, an expert in the history of girl groups. And we're going to discuss how Camilla's exit from her former group, Fifth Harmony, is part of a history of women artists struggling to be taken seriously as solo performers. So to get right into it, we need to talk about Havana and its central thesis. It has an incessant thesis. Do you know what I'm talking about, Nate? Uh, the thesis of this song. Um, I mean, I'm just going to go right to the chorus here. Half of her heart is in Havana. Na, na, na. He took me back to East Atlanta. Na, 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 na. Oh, but my heart is in Havana. Uh, na, na, na. Exactly. Did, did I do it? Did I nail it? Okay, good. That was a little stressful. I felt like I was in class again. <laughs> This is the thesis of the song. It takes place in two different geographies, East Atlanta and Havana. Well, okay, I just have to interrupt very quickly here. I know we will no, need to get sure, into sure, it. Sure, sure, sure. But thesis, are you sure this isn't, I think what you're describing here is in fact a Hegelian dialectic in which <laughs> we have a thesis, Havana, and antithesis, East Atlanta. And the question I think yes. you might be asking is, will we arrive at that desired point of synthesis? <laughs> Well, you know that I love synthesis. I hope that we can get there. But the way to find out is to explore this musical history and see how she does it. Because while some other critics have called this simply a hip-hop Latin fusion crossover track, there is so much more going on here. And I think that it doesn't give nearly the respect to the histories of music that are being represented and igniting our listening here. On the surface, one could say... Well, you know, Camilla, she's from Havana. Her guest star, Young Thug, is from East Atlanta. All right, the player set the stage. Done. Simple. Thesis complete. 
do you think I'm satisfied? No, I think there's more to unpack here. So what do you think? Do we start in Atlanta or Havana? Where, where do we begin? As the expert in toiling with drum machines and sample based instruments, I figured maybe I could approach things from the East Atlanta side. And since you are uh, really talented on the keys, why don't you tickle the ivories and uh, teach us a little bit about what's going to happen on the Havana side? All right. I accept the proposition. Take it away. Okay. So Camilla says that her partner takes her back to East Atlanta and she is evoking this East Atlanta by referencing specific genres within Atlanta hip hop. And to establish that sound, I thought what we could do is take a listen to a famous Atlanta rapper, T.I., and his track, Whatever You Like, to get a taste of that Atlanta hip hop sound. Mm, I haven't heard this in a while. I'm so ready. Okay, so with now with that in mind, let's go back to Havana and see if we're hearing some similarities. Hmm. Okay, I guess if pressed as I am at the moment to come up with some similarities, it would have to be in the world of the drums, right? That's where Definitely. I can see some continuity here. But I feel already out of my depth, so I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> depth is the right word here because these drums are huge and deep. There's lots of elements that we could dive into. There's obviously Young Thug's verse. There are vocal samples. There is that hi-hat trap sound happening throughout parts of this track. But you are right to focus in on the drums. And I want to focus on one specific element of the drums, and that is just the kick bass sound people call it an 808 journey to the center of the kick <laughs> and i don't know if you know this nate but the 808 is probably one of the most important sounds in hip-hop it is referenced everywhere people will say hey throw an 808 on it do you hear that 808? there's 808s everywhere famous on uh kanye west's album 808 and heartbreak mm. These three digits, 808, it is not the zip code to any place in Hawaii. <laughs> it is actually an instrument. Are you familiar with this 808 and what it means? Uh, I think you meant area code, but I love the simile, <laughs> so I can't protest. No, and I'm glad you brought it up because this is an opportunity both for anyone listening and me to uh, perhaps learn a little more about these mysterious three letters. I know it's a drum machine made by the Roland Corporation yes. that was popular in the 1980s and continues to be used today, but that's about it. That's right. In order to get to East Atlanta, we have to travel back in time to the 1980s all the way over to Japan. Oh, that was surprising. Okay, great. What are we doing here? Well, what we're doing in Japan is we are listening to the first production model of the TR-808 drum machine. It was produced by the Roland Company in 1980 and was deemed an absolute failure and discontinued after only three years. Huh. Now, what do you make of the sound of this instrument? It sounds, in a word, very 80s, right? Very like dawn <laughs> yeah. of the drum machine. A little tinny, not very sophisticated in a way, but wonderful. Like totally, I, I love these sounds, but they, they sound a little like 
Fisher Price. Yeah. <laughs> well, you love it now because it is iconic. Um, mm-hmm. It has become one of the most important instruments in the history of music, I would argue. And the thing about it is that it has a really sort of bland sound when we first hear it. It's kind of uninspiring. So the question is, how do we get from this discontinued, unsuccessful drum machine sound from Japan in the 1980s to modern Atlanta hip hop today? To take us there, we have to go through the vector of Marvin Gaye and his hit track, Sexual Healing. Mm. Because in 1982, Gay put the 808 at the center of his hit song. Whoa, so Sexual Healing uses the 808. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I like what he's doing with it here. He's somehow found a way to make these really kind of tinny, cheap sounds work in his favor. Yeah, and there's some minor effects on there that make it sound a little bit better, but this is not a banging hip-hop track by any means, right? No, this is a deep slow jam. So even though Marvin Gaye's track helped make the 808 famous, creating uh, desire amongst the marketplace. Everyone had to get an 808 to make that sound. What's going to happen is in Atlanta, we're going to zoom in on just one element of that drum machine in order to make banging tracks. And it is specifically the kick drum. Because when we listen to that Marvin Gaye track, the kick drum is a little... uh, it's a little weak. Oh, okay. So you're saying that hip-hop producers kind of rediscover this instrument and sort of beef up the kick drum and turn it into this iconic sound from zero to hero. They're going to popularize it by giving it some more oomph. All right. So let's hear. I want to hear this new and improved bass drum. Fast forward in time to 1995. We can go back over to Atlanta and listen to Jermaine Dupri's version of Mariah Carey's Always Be My Baby. And just like Marvin Gaye, the 808 is featured right at the beginning of the track. So the 808 has been made famous by Marvin Gaye. It's popularized by artists like Dupree in Atlanta. But the hip-hop Atlanta sound doesn't really start to evolve until the late 90s, early 2000s. I want to take a listen to Outcasts so fresh, so clean. And we're going to hear that they have found a way to get this simple little kick drum to hit harder and to really start to develop this sound. Oh yeah, there it is. Okay, now that's like the 808 kick I know and love. Exactly. But we're missing one really important element because... There's something that happens in the Havana track, which is that East Atlanta sound, which we're not getting yet on Outcast. And if we zero in on the kick drum, what we're going to notice is that the actual sound of it changes pitches on the Havana track. Havana, Where on the Outcast, it sort of has a consistent bang to it. And so in the development of this 808 Atlanta hip-hop sound, we start to get pitched kick drums. This thing which was first a steady tone is going to be moved around so that it starts to have a melodic element to it. To get a sense of what I'm talking about, we need to listen to the bass-heavy crunk production of Lil Jon (laughs) and his 
incredibly effective track, Get Low. Now we have that pitched element. And soon this sound takes over. It becomes totally ubiquitous. We hear it on modern tracks like Gucci Mane and Migos on their track, I Get the Bag. Modern hip hop, trap music, the sound is now ubiquitous. Everybody's using it. And it was really developed through this Atlanta hip hop scene. Okay, so that characteristic kick drum sound arrives from the 808, which has been slowly morphed by sort of like generation after generation of hip hop producer from its original kind of tinny sound that you can hear on Marvin Gaye's sexual healing to now this like massive, deep bass pitched kick that's both rhythm and melody at the same time gotcha that is exactly right the 808 has gone from this entirely dry thing to this banging kick drum such that the name of the instrument is actually now just synonymous with the sound of that particular bass kick and we can hear this same evolution on camilla's track havana because she introduces the song with a dry 808 just like we heard on that opening marvin gay track but it is sans kick drum and so to add some variation and some interest and that punch in that bass, she's going to add in a kick drum. But I want to just give you a sense of what it would sound like. What if she didn't have that sort of pitched banging sound, but actually just like the original sexual healing sort of sound? Uh-huh. It's missing something, right? Not quite the same. Yeah, not the same. <laughs> so all of a sudden, okay, so let's see what it sounds like if we start to pitch that bass around. Yeah. Okay, we're nearly there, right? Getting a little closer. Yeah, this porridge is like a little too cold, but we'll get there, yeah. Now let's just Lil John it. Let's crank it up. Let's crunk it up. I'm really sorry. That's really just, just terrible. Just talk. <laughs> if, if you take that same sound, you compress it, you distort it, you mess with it a little bit, you're going to get a modern 808. And check out Camilla's song with that modern 808 sound. That's the Havana I know and love. So what was once a Japanese toy drum machine derided for its terrible replication of an actual drum set is now the quintessential element to modern hip hop. And for that matter, pop. That is the 808. So when we hear that on Havana, we are actually hearing this entire reference of musical history going back to the early 80s and really the history of modern hip hop, which that sound was developed right there in East Atlanta. So that's East Atlanta. I'm curious about Havana. Great, because if what you've just described is the antithesis of the song, I can now provide the thesis, and then we can decide whether (laughs) we have synthesis. Thank you for that. That was very edifying. And dovetails very nicely with my analysis of the Cuban influence in this song, which for me is all centered around this piano riff that we hear at the very beginning of the track. 
the sound puts you right into that Havana feel, but I'm not sure I understand where it's coming from and what it means. Well, I think just in the same way as that kick drum signifies Atlanta so strongly, in order to understand why this piano signifies Cuba so strongly, we need to go into the history of this sound. In order to that, I have enlisted the help of Kwame Coleman, composer, pianist, musicologist, assistant, professor at the Galton School at NYU. He can help us understand this piano motive, which is called a montuno, and how it actually Mm. comes from this Cuban style called the son, and how this particular variation we're hearing is something called a guajira, or a country song, a lament for the country. So we can see that Havana, in fact, belongs to this deeper tradition of Cuban music. But it, uh, I'm already, I'm already going to butcher this. So let's go to Kwame <laughs> and explanation of the piano montuno here. Son is a, a style of music. It's a genre. It's a family of styles within one genre that form the basis of Cuban popular music at large and for much much of what we call Latin music today. If I'm going to think how Cuban musicians working in these nightclubs thought a hundred years ago when there was first this idea of like Cuban music that Americans knew, uh, it was really a question of adapting things, right? And part of the tradition in the son, you know, there's a distinction between son music, S-O-N, son music from the countryside, and something that they call son montuno, so a kind of mounted son. This was a kind of music that was adapted to the nightclubs in Havana, you know, so there was a lot of things, there were a lot of things added onto it. But the son from the countryside involved an instrument called the tres, and the tres is a kind of guitar with three sets of double strings. And the tres guitar accompanied singers. It was a solo instrument as well. So it's this way of approaching rhythm from the tres guitar that was adapted to the piano in the nightclubs of Havana. So the rhythm that we hear on the piano in the song is basically a stylized version of what the tres guitar would be playing in a son context. So that's where that comes from. So this very country style of folk tradition when migrating to the city now picks up the big city instrument you know now we have a much fuller more city kind of ensemble playing and so the piano is adapting from the earlier country song style Guajira is a a type of song song style where uh, the lyrics are usually uh, more lamenting, right? Uh, Usually a story of leaving the countryside or a story of the countryside, some kind of loss, some kind of lament. Guajira is played much slower than the much faster and dance-friendly version of the song called the Guaracha. So the Guajira is a little slower, and because of the kind of lamenting themes or lamentation and loss, these kinds of things, and characteristic of that rhythm is a very slow kind of arpeggio. (laughs) 
the Guajira is not just about lamentation. I mean, there were several layers of kind of meaning and connotation too, because if it was about love loss, you know, part of it is remembering the love itself. So there's this kind of slow burning energy there as well. I mean, call it, I, I don't know if seduction is quite the word, but there is some kind of erotic element to it as well, you know, and the Guajira, if you're dancing to it, is precisely the kind of dance where you dance very closely. It's a very intimate kind of thing. So it's not just about lamentation, you know, it's about also maybe uh, those kind of deeper forms of attraction or seduction that can happen. You know, the very many complicated feelings when you're in love or when love is lost. So maybe that has something to do with this newer song as well. Nate, this is utterly blowing my mind because what I thought was just like a Cuban-esque sound is so much more. Kwame's discussion of its history is the narrative of this track, right? It's the longing for being from a different place, the sound which has traveled, this rhythm which has come down from the mountains, and this longing for going back to one's home is central to the Havana argument. Her heart is back in Havana. And then underneath that as well is this like eroticism and this movement and this song makes you want to dance and it's about two partners getting together. The whole track feels like it's buried in this history. Totally. And it brings out this like kind of unexpected parallel to your history of the 808. I mean, both of these sounds, this piano sound, we're hearing this Montuno is essentially the like metropolitan version of this older country trace guitar style so in both cases we're hearing sort of like the modern update of the original sound yeah yeah and in a way how that like gives us this nostalgia and this sense of loss at the same time Hmm. so this brings us now to the the question that looms over us havana does it represent the synthesis (laughs) the have we reached the the apex of the hegelian dialectic The sentence you may not have expected to hear it right next to the words communicabeo. <laughs> well, okay. I think the, the way that we can know whether or not this works is to rather than treat these things in isolation, you have to put them together. What happens when you take the piano montuno and add it to the 808 kick drum? You get a really dancey track that works really well that represents both of those histories incredibly beautifully. They together are more than the sum of their parts. Well, I totally agree. And that might be because each of these sounds has a layered history that intersects in like multiple surprising mm. ways. Yeah, you're hearing entire histories of music. You're not just hearing these two sounds. And those histories are pulling on all of our musical knowledge and things we've heard in the past to bring us to this moment. Could we call it synthesis? Yeah, I mean, it's synthesis in in the sense that if we bring it right back down to earth, it really just works. It just moves your body. It's clearly on everyone's lips and ears. So, yeah. Synthesis. Amazing. Oh, it's so much fun. I loved hearing that history. I actually was totally clueless that both the 808 and the Montuno would have this just richness of connection. Oh my gosh, I mean, the whole song is so much better for it. And the other thing to celebrate about this song might be that it can act as sort of a gateway (laughs) drug to access more music from each of these styles, both the Atlanta hip-hop style and the Cuban son montuno style. So where do we find out more examples of these, Charles? 
I never knew that I would be creating a playlist that would include trap music, crunk music, snap music from East Atlanta with Afro-Cuban jazz on the exact same playlist. But you know I've made it. It'll be on Spotify, and uh, we will share that on our website, switchedonpop.com, associated with this episode. And I actually also have one other nice little secret, which is that in the East Atlanta reference, there is a song that I think is being directly borrowed from. A just perfect mashup. And uh, I've put that together. I'm going to share it on Twitter so people can hear what song, actually one that we've covered before on the show, is uh, Camila Cabello and her producers. What, what, what are they drawing from? Whoa, this is like a treasure hunt. Okay, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. So we got the playlist. We got the uh, secret mashup. Those are all going to be on the website and on Twitter. This has been just absolutely fantastic, but there's more to do. Because in the second half, I'm going to speak with Hannah Stein Kopfrank, a expert in girl groups, about how challenging it is to break out of the confines of the label of girl group. I can't wait. I'm going to go make some popcorn during the break. <laughs> All right, I'll see you there. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you have allergies, then I've got a familiar scenario for you. You wake up on a beautiful spring morning and peek outside. You get a feel of that nice breeze, but then you start to feel a little tickle in your nostrils. That tickle is the spring air telling you to go be a hermit and avoid the outside because you'll soon be a sniffling, sneezing mess. But don't listen to it. Allergies suck, but a good nasal spray makes all the difference. I personally learned that I suffer from adult onset allergies, and it's a real bummer. But a good allergy med makes all the difference for my ability to go out in the springtime to smell magnolias, my favorite flower. If you also want relief quickly to get back to breathing in the spring air, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. In the first half of the episode, we deconstructed Camila Cabello's successful number one hit after her departure from the X-Factor-derived girl group Fifth Harmony. And transitioning into a solo act is not an easy move, and it was met with significant criticism from both the band itself and the industry. However, many have charted this path before, and what we may see are differences in expectations and opportunities for solo artists emerging from girl groups than from boy bands. To help us understand this gender dynamic, I have joining me Hannah Steinkopf-Frank, a writer for Bitch Media and expert in girl groups. Hannah, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks. I'm excited to be here. So to start things off, I want to get the definition of just what what is a girl group? Where does this label come from? And what are we hearing when we claim to be hearing this label of girl group music? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a label that's definitely been contentious and has changed a lot over time. Really, the girl group label started in the late 1950s, early 60s with the emergence of, you know, a wave of girl groups in the United States whose sound was inspired by both doo-wop as well as barbershop quartets. And these were Hmm. some of the first 
groups to appeal to a largely teenage audience and be made up of all women. Traditionally, women oh. have often been left out of popular music and popular recorded music, not only because of lack of access to music education, but also because of recording technology that really wasn't good at recording the higher caliber of female voices. But whoa, wait a minute. Okay, we gotta we gotta dig into that. What do you mean the recording technology itself is biased? Yeah, I don't have know as much of the technical background on this, but yeah, early recording technology <laughs> often made women's voices sound very shrill and high pitched, and sometimes oh. that's just the natural caliber of female voices. But there's a lot of writing on how they didn't sound as good recorded, so really, huh. women did not have as much of an access to being in recorded music. And you know, we see that with artists like Elvis. You ain't nothing but a during the 40s and 50s who became famous with songs by black women like with Big Mama Thornton and Horn Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. There are often histories that are forgotten, but these girl groups with their collective close harmony singing styles were really the first to take on popular music and really be part of the defining of a teenage music genre. Okay, so that's the origin of the sound. And what are some of the characteristics of a sound which is labeled a girl group rather than a collection of women who might be singing? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's one of the really yeah. contentious things about this because, you know, during the 60s, the right. girl group sound developed a lot with Phil Spector and his wall of sound, mm. particularly with his work with groups like the Ronettes and with the Shangri-Las. different themes that come out to sort of define this girl group sound. You have that close harmony singing with Phil Spector, you have a lot of that large orchestration, but these groups did really unique things with the fact that they had multiple female singers, a lot of which came from both religious church gospel backgrounds mm. as well as schoolyard singings and songs. And so you see a huh. lot of relationships emerge with this girl groups uh, lyrically with harmonies. You see background singers both supporting the message of the lead singer in certain songs, but then also sort of contradicting and presenting a different message in other songs. So it created this dialogue that a lot of feminist scholars have argued led to the feminist discourse of second wave feminism a little bit later in the decade and in the 1970s. But really, you know, when we see the second wave of girl groups that came around in the 90s with the Spice Girls, Destiny's Child, TLC, sort of the similarity you see there, even though you see a lot broader musical styles with R&B, rap, more, you know, pop of that era, you still see these songs that really gear towards a teenage audience and there especially you saw more themes of female empowerment that you saw a little bit with 60s girl groups, but a lot of those 60s girl groups really, a lot of the focus was on adoration towards a boy, songs focused on love and romance. But in the 90s, with sort of a girl power theme, we saw a lot more songs that questioned that focus on the man and brought more power and authority to girls being together in female solidarity. If you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. Make it last forever. Friendship never ends. If you want to be my lover, you have got to give. Taking is too easy.
I think, you know, when you're talking about the difference between a girl group and a group of all-female musicians, especially because this day and age, there are so many great, technically all-female bands, there's a lot of contention there because a lot of all-female musicians don't necessarily like being labeled as such. They don't want their music to be defined by their gender. I think a lot of female artists can feel this sort of hinders them. It's a label they get stuck with. I think the contention nowadays is a lot of all-female groups don't like to be labeled as such, but at the same time, there's a reason that they've chosen to play with all-female musicians. There's a reason they've chosen to create a space for themselves with all other female musicians. Music can, and creation can be so intimate. A lot of all-female bands today, they're able to create the music they do because they're doing with other women who share their experiences. But at the same time, they don't want their gender to totally define themselves as creative people. You mentioned perhaps a difference in the labeling between girl group and boy band. Are there ways in which this label sets up difference in expectations and opportunities for groups with just the difference of the moniker group versus band? Absolutely. And I think one of the main difference is, is it's a lot more fluid to be a boy band or a boy group. Because, you know, I think really when defining a boy group, you sort of have that same audience, young teenage females. But I think it's a lot more fluid for these male singers, even if they have the same talent or experience as their girl group female counterparts, I think it's often a lot easier for them to transition into a more mature artist role. You know, we see what Justin Timberlake, how he, you know, reinvents himself, reinvents himself and is able to develop this adult professional persona. But I think what's so ironic about this is, you know, you look at the Beatles. Mm -hmm. They started as a boy band. They started as a cover band. They covered a million girl group songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, they always played their own instruments, but they would be nothing if it wasn't for black American musicians. Of course. But they were able, because of their gender, I would argue, to develop into what would be considered a boy band that is revered critically while their female counterparts, when they were literally playing the same songs aren't considered in history at that same level. There seems to have been a real gap in the girl group in the aughts and early 2010s. However, are we experiencing a return of the girl group with groups like Fifth Harmony and Little Mix? What's happening right now and what is the importance of the girl group Mm -hmm. in today's musical landscape? What I love about thinking about girl groups is it's impossible to examine them without looking at the sociopolitical context. You know, we had this other huge gap, you know, really from the late 60s to the mid-90s, where right. besides Bananarama and maybe the Go-Go's, there really wasn't a girl group culture. And we saw the n- late 90s, early aughts girl group culture coming out of the Riot Girl movement as sort of a commercialized, mainstream version of that. Uh. When you had Riot Girl groups like Cedar Kitty or whatever, they created a sound right. that was really powerful, but not necessarily commercially successful. And we saw yeah. girl groups as a response to that. Even despite the success of Little Mix and Fifth Harmony, we aren't really seeing girl groups have the same mainstream success and power that we've seen in the past. You know, the Spice Girls were the most financially successful girl, uh, I think, all-female group of all time. And I think one thing that's been interesting looking at now is where we're seeing all-female groups coming from. You know, traditionally it's been the U.S. and the U.K., but we're actually seeing a good number of all-female groups out of K-pop. Oh my god. 
And that's where I think some of the most mm. interesting and most powerful girl groups are coming out of. And I am noticing that a lot of the K-pop groups, Wonder Girls and 21 and a couple others that had huge financial success, they had some of the largest crossover success of any K-pop artists. They're starting to disband, but I think it's leading room for new girl groups to come out. But at the same time, it's sort of interesting to look at girl groups now and why they aren't as successful regarding seeing them because the girl group was created as a unified force, as a group. You know, in the 60s and in the 90s, they dressed the same. Right. They often had similar voices. They were meant to present a unified front. You know, they even often had different singers and they would try to make them look the same. You know, it really wasn't about the individual personas, the individual people is about this collective group. Yeah. But I think nowadays with popular culture and especially with women, we really care about those individualized personalities, individualized looks. Mm. And so I think maybe why we aren't seeing girl groups having as much success or cultural power is because we really value those individual musicians and those individual stories. And with the girl groups we have, they have such distinct personas within the members. But, Mm. you know, at the same time, I wouldn't go as far with that because I think of the pushback that did happen with Fifth Harmony when Camilla left. And I think it's really interesting to compare her new album with the work she was doing there. And, you know, people talk about how personal it is, how much more mature it is. And, Mm. you know, we sort of see how those stereotypes of girl groups come through, you know, while the music of Fifth Harmony is considered more youthful or less personal or more commercialized Mm -hmm. it still begs the question if for her to create music that is considered critically successful does she have to do it as a solo artist was most of the criticism of her leaving generated from this expectation of unity you know i really think so i think there's this expectation that she was part of this group and part of this image and you know and obviously there's some controversy around how she left but Yeah, I really do think a lot of it is that she was expected to be part of this thing. And the fact that she's taking the agency to explore herself as a solo artist, I think she's more criticized as a woman than she would be if she was a man. It's a really fascinating point. Yeah, and we have seen, you know, standout stars from girl groups. You know, we have Diana Ross with The Supremes, Beyonce with Destiny's Child. She isn't the first girl group singer to find as much, if not more, success as a solo artist. But I think it's really hard. Yeah, it's difficult to break out. It seems like one of the dynamics that may be contributing to the decline of girl groups is their origin, which has typically been through parts of consolidated music industry, right? So both Little Mix and Fifth Harmony were winners of X Factor. And the cultural importance of these reality TV shows like X Factor, American Idol, and so on don't seem to have quite the staying power and direct relationship to future album sales. Hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that we're seeing a shift? Are we going to see a different kind of girl group emerging? Absolutely. And I think really connected to that is the role that producers and songwriters and mad managers and labels played in the creation of girl groups Mm. you know these groups in the 60s were crafted at motown they literally went to a finishing school to learn how to dress walk dance how to act and one of the i mean probably the biggest criticism of girl groups is most of them didn't write their own music and there's sort of this lack of agency that's seen as a way to take down girl groups because they weren't often singing songs that they wrote. They weren't playing instruments. And singing is also often being considered not as prestigious as playing an instrument. Right. And so I think, you know, when looking at reality TV, you know, the girl groups that have come out of it, they've been crafted by 
Simon Carl, they've been crafted by these reality TV shows and put together. And I totally agree with you that I think the issue is that people want something that feels natural. They don't want artificial. They don't want something that feels like it's coming out of an executive office, which is admittedly how a lot of girl groups came together. But I think the pushback on that, I would say that in the 60s, a girl listening to a girl group song in her bedroom, she didn't care if that girl didn't write that song. She didn't care if she didn't really play a role in how it was produced. It's the fact that those lyrics and that voice are reaching her and impacting her. That's absolutely right. People first listen for what connects with them emotionally. It doesn't matter the dynamics of what made it. Mm-hmm. I do wonder about how these kinds of criticisms about a rockist attitude about who wrote it, who played what instruments, those criticisms seem to be eroding in the era of modern music production, perhaps because modern music production is so confusing, it's hard to know who contributed what sample, how it was chopped, and so on. We definitely have shifted on our own show, and I think we're seeing a shift in the general public away from this concern about single authorship to an acceptance of the reality that all modern pop music, with few exceptions, are collaborative efforts of songwriters, producers, dozens of performers, and it's not unexpected now to see long credits for individual songs with eight or nine songwriters. Mm -hmm. However... Maybe even to contradict my own statement, I do recall a lot of criticism about Beyonce's Lemonade and the number of songwriters that she had to use in order to get a quality product. Whereas when we listen to Justin Timberlake's new album, people celebrate his reunion with his producer, Timbaland. So perhaps those expectations still exist and do not apply equally. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally think there's just this expectation of individualism. And as an artist, you have to do it yourself. It's You're not true unless you have this sort of, you know, hands in a million roles, you're sort of doing everything as part of the production. Inherently, a girl group is a collective effort. Yeah, It's not a solo endeavor. I wonder about what's going to happen with girl groups. And maybe it's worth looking at a case study. The other biggest girl group next to Fifth Harmony right now is arguably Little Mix. They also came from, I think it was the eighth season of X Factor. Their most recent hit is called Reggaeton Lento. It's with a boy band called CNCO, and it's generated over a half billion views on YouTube. So that says to me, all right, it's got some pretty significant cultural resonance and influence. For you, what does this successful multi-crossover song, crossover between genre and boy band girl group, what does this song tell us, if anything, about the trajectory of girl groups and what's to come in this post-reality television importance of the generation of girl groups? Yeah, I think the song is really fascinating because we really don't have that many examples of girl groups forming and banding with boy bands. It's pretty unique. Hmm. But at the same time, I sort of question how much this song is moving the discussion forward. It's a remix Mm. of a song that they did, all in Spanish. Yeah. But there's a level of disconnect, I feel. It almost feels like two different songs. And, Mm. you know, when you are talking about Havana earlier, I kept contrasting it to this, right? Because Havana is such a mix of these cultural elements, a mix of who Camila is as a person, as an artist. She's American. She's Cuban. But... Yeah. 
I really feel with this song, there's a level of disconnect. And mm. I just learned that if you see the music video for it, you see the two groups on two different sides of a club. And they're looking at each other, they're singing to each other, but they never touch or interact. <laughs> and I just learned they actually filmed it in two different locations. And at the time of the interview I saw, they never actually met in person. So they created this whole song, this whole video, this whole collaboration, having never met. Oh. And I think that explains so much of the disconnect that you really feel in this song. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Listeners tend to be more comfortable today, I think, with this idea of, let's call it composed authenticity. We, we understand that Camilla is working with a, a set of songwriters and is contributing and that there's a collaborative effort going even into the generation of her identity as a solo act. However, it has to be coming from a sense of a real place. The origin story feels real. That is her identity as a Cuban-American and, and the music of both cultures is present on that track. So excellent execution of artistry. However, on the CNCO and Little Mix track, it feels almost like, maybe this is too crude, but almost like a Despacito Me Too. Yeah. Right, let's also do a little remix of what was a Spanish song, see if we can extend it to a larger audience with a, um, in this case, a British group and see if we can get a big crossover hit and make a bunch of money. That's kind of how I'm feeling that it's happening, especially that they never even met to record. Yeah, and you know, not to harsh on the song too hard because yeah. I think it is totally danceable and totally fun. Oh, yeah. But I think one thing that is interesting about it is looking at the lyrics, you do sort of see them on this common playing field. You know, mm. I think often when you see songs with male-female collaborators, the woman often takes on a more submissive, passive role. And you mm. see the male singer as sort of the dominant. And you see this in yeah. girl group songs, you know. They're often the ones having things done to them. The Shangri-Las, Give Them a Great Big Kiss, is like <laughs> one of the most radical out there girl group songs because she just goes and kisses the guy that she likes. So like the first girl group song that got really popular was the Chantelle's Maybe, 1958 or 59. And the whole song was literally about maybe this guy will like me. Mm. You know, you see Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes. Literally, she's waiting for the mailman to come with the letter. You see this sort yep. of hesitation, this waiting for the man to make the move, to make the action. But with this song, you know, how they switch between English and Spanish, you really do sort of see them on equal levels and how huh. they take on each other's languages. I think there is maybe a slightly deeper level of communication and cross-cultural right. communication than with Despacito, but I totally agree that it doesn't go that far and really sort of falls in the trap of trying to mimic this trend of, you know, Latin pop mega hits. It seems to be serving both purposes. And I don't mean to make any sort of false equivalency between the two tracks because they are obviously different, both in where they're generated from, their artistry, all that the tracks are saying. One significant difference that does come to me is that while the Justin Bieber version of Despacito is arguably what helped break the track into the mainstream, it was the original track that then had became successful. The remix broke it, and the original ended up being the most successful version. One thing that's really cool about 
you know, comparing working with Little Mix and CNCO is they're both really diverse groups. Mm. Um, even though CNCO is a whole Latin American group, they're from Cuba, Dominican Republic, the U.S., and El Salvador. Mm. And the members of Little Mix um, have a really diverse ethnic background. Mm. And so I think that's something that's really cool that we see with modern girl groups. We saw with Spice Girls to an extent as well that it's totally different from the 60s girl groups, which were completely divided by race. Hmm. You know, even though most of the songs were written by white men, mm-hmm. the groups themselves were completely divided. So I think looking at girl groups moving forward, one thing I would also say is, and I think this song as well sort of suggests the increased opportunities for cross-cultural collaboration in an increasingly right. connected, multicultural world. Do you hear that multiculturalism reflected back in the actual performance and the kinds of music that these artists are making? I'm not sure if I would say it in that song especially, but one of my favorite Little Mix songs is one that they did with Missy Elliott. Hmm. How you doing? Do you know that mm-hmm. song? I haven't heard it, no. I think it's in like 2012. It's one of my favorites of theirs. And I think Missy Elliott actually did a song with Fifth Harmony as well. It's a, a classic, very well-known artist working with Extraordinary. a younger girl group sound. And that song is a very classic female empowerment. It's about a boy who's doing you no good, so you just don't pick up the phone when he calls, pretty much. <laughs> you know, you sort of see how Missy Elliott and her idea of empowerment, of female empowerment, fits with sort of the Spice Girls-inspired version of female empowerment. And so I think these groups really have the potential to do that. And, you know, talking about working with other artists, I really think the girl group genre is fodder for the sort of collaborations that can occur in our modern recording culture. So we're seeing Camilla step out and create uh, the beginning of potentially a successful long solo career. What kind of dynamics need to change both in cultural expectations and potentially within the music industry dynamics in order to make this more possible for other artists in these bands to step out and have solo careers yeah exactly i think you know having faith that these artists can be successful and can create work that really has a large audience i mean teenage girls their financial power has grown exponentially since the 1950s they're some of the biggest consumers but yet for some reason they're constantly ignored or abandoned and i mean you see this with so many other marginalized groups it only feels like now we could have movies like get out or black panther made that end up being incredibly hugely commercially successful but at the same time take so much convincing of the current system to be made Mm. and so i think it's just and i hate bringing it back to a capitalist economic model but i really think that producing these artists is expensive. And I think realizing that when they create work that touches a large segment of the population, even if it's considered not as nuanced or, you know, mature as other artists. Oh, wow. Those words, nuanced and mature, they require probably some significant unpacking because within (laughs) them, and, and and I know that you say that from a place as uh, the sort of the the standard criticisms that are that are levied against against these artists, because certainly the music that whether it was the Ronettes or Destiny's Child or today with Fifth Harmony, the music that they're creating certainly has parts of nuance. Mm-hmm. 
it's obviously created for a mass audience but mm-hmm. you look at the ronettes as, as you spoke about you know that sound they created became the wall of sound and influenced popular music throughout history destiny's child has had a significant influence on r&b mm-hmm. and so interesting how we use these words isn't it oh absolutely and i fall into that trap too mm. and you know i often look to um you know, one of my favorite girl group songs is the first one to hit number one. It's the Shirelles, Will You uh, Love Me Tomorrow? Tonight you're mine, completely. You give me your love so sweetly. Tonight the light of love is in your eyes. But will you love me? Which can be interpreted as a pretty, like, simple song about a girl deciding whether to have sex with her boyfriend for the first time. And it could be seen as sort of simplistic, naive, mm-hmm. but the backstory to it, it was written by Carol King and Gary Goffin. And the backstory is that Carol King got pregnant when she was 18 and quickly got married and pretty miraculously was still able to build a prolific <laughs> decades-long career as both a songwriter and as her own artist. Yeah. And so you hear that song and you hear it coming from the voice of the Shirelles and you're like, okay, this girl just sounds sort of naive and like she doesn't really know what she's doing. She's not self-assured. But you know the backstory that's written by a woman who knows the consequences of potentially having sex. And then in right. the broader context, too, that that was right around the time that birth control was becoming legal mm. and available. The pill was becoming legal. So you also have, for the first time, girls were also able to make this choice. It wasn't simply, will I get pregnant or not? It's, Mm. will my partner judge me? Will society judge me? Wow. And so, you know, even when you take these songs that feel very simple on the front, even if they do have interesting musical elements, when you know the story behind them, they carry that nuance, like I was saying. Yeah. It brings me back to what you were saying about that uh, young woman listening to a record alone in their room and making an emotional connection. And so often the fan base itself is derided for their lack of nuance or intellect. And clearly that's uh, just another gendered criticism because in songs like you just mentioned, the Carol King penned song, fans are digging into that. They're hearing that it's speaking to those experiences. So I really, I really appreciate you bringing that thoughtful deconstruction. Yeah. And what's so beautiful about these songs thinking about, how they've been interpreted by artists since. You know, I don't know if you've heard the Amy Winehouse cover of that, but it's beautiful. And so you see how these generations and generations of female artists can still relate to these messages and to the emotion of these songs. Wow. Well, I'm just really thankful for the depth of research and history and understanding of this music that you bring. And thank you for helping us see with greater clarity a lot of the dynamics that are going on here. They're not as simple as they seem on face value. Absolutely. It was such a pleasure. I'll talk about girl groups for days. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Hannah. Awesome. Thanks. One more thing before we go. We want to let you know about another podcast we really dig called 20,000 Hertz. It's outstanding. It's about the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. And listeners of Switched on Pop might want to start with their episode about Muzak. 
where host <laughs> Dallas Taylor explores the history of Muzak and how music in public spaces are designed to influence you. All right, so here's a short clip from that episode. Muzak gave us a lot more than just the genre of easy listening. Muzak introduced the idea that music was to occupy and influence public spaces. There's a lot of, frankly, spurious research which purports to show that we all love music everywhere. We don't. Unlike the easy listening of Muzak's heyday, music in public spaces today is often faster and louder. Restaurant reviewers who measure and list noise in their reviews are reporting levels above 70 and even 80 decibels. Those levels can cause hearing loss over time. Charlie and I are such fans of the smart music analysis and brilliant sound design so good. in this podcast. So subscribe to 20,000 Hertz. That's all the letters spelled out in your favorite podcast player. We have no doubt you'll love it. This episode of Switched On Pop was produced by me, Charlie Harding, and my friend over there, Professor Nate Sloan. Our design is by Luke Harris. And our wonderful editing and mixing is done by the magnificent Bill Lance. Huge thanks to Dr. Kwame Coleman for contributing his expertise to our show. And I'm so grateful to have had Hannah Steinkopf-Frank on the show. You can find more of her writing on Bitch Media or at the Chicago Tribune's Red Eye, their arts and entertainment publication. She also recommends for listeners the book Girl Groups, Girl Culture, Popular Music and Identity in the 1960s by Jacqueline Warwick. An amazing reference on everything about girl groups. Definitely want to check that out. You can find our Atlanta Havana mashup playlist at our website, switchedonpop.com, where you'll also find more episodes. And let us know what you think on Twitter at Switched on Pop or Facebook, Switched on Pop. We'll also make sure you get that nice little secret mashup that we were mentioning. Hey, we're a really proud member of the Panoply Network. We're going to be back in two weeks. We're going to have another episode. I think that's all I've got for credits. I'd say so, except thanks. Thanks for listening. (laughs) For listening. One final shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. You know, it's a terrible question. What's your favorite part of having nasal allergies? I don't know. Absolutely nothing. Luckily, you might be able to find some relief with Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's astaproallergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.